Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Boris Johnson urges caution from his new Downing Street briefing room as we take our first tentative steps out of the latest lockdown. I'm Heather Stewart, political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. I don't see anything in the data right now uh, that would cause us to, to deviate uh, from, the, from the roadmap. In a week that saw people from two households allowed to meet up outdoors, the Prime Minister doubled down on his roadmap out of lockdown, promising there will be no speeding up or slowing down when it comes to unlocking England. That won't stop some Tory backbenchers from demanding a faster process, of course. So will Johnson be able to see his plan all the way through to the end? Meanwhile, Downing Street is facing a backlash after Number 10's Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities finally published its report into racial equality in the UK. The summary of the report concluded that while overt racism definitely exists, there was no evidence of institutional racism. In a year where COVID-19 has disproportionately affected people of colour, will this report be accepted by the public? Well, at least now, when we have questions for the Prime Minister, or in future his press secretary, we have a fancy new room to do it in. After Johnson gave his first press conference from the newly built and very expensive briefing room, I chatted to former Downing Street spinners about how the Prime Minister is trying to get his message across. And after a tumultuous few weeks in Scottish politics, Libby Brooks looks at the potential fallout for the players in the Alex Salmon scandal as Holyrood grapples with a culture of turning a blind eye and fear for those who speak out. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, as some coronavirus restrictions were lifted on Monday, Boris Johnson had some scandals to contend with. To dive into all of that and more, I'm joined by Guardian political correspondent Peter Walker. Peter, as always, it's lovely to have you on. Let's start off on a high note, shall we? The weather seemed to know that COVID restrictions were lifting slightly this week. Lovely (laughs) and sunny. Did you manage to get out, meet some friends, have a cycle, see someone from a safe distance outside? I've been seeing some people from a safe distance. I've been more been trying to get out and about, um, you know, get out on my bike and go for walks because... I'm aware that by the weekend it's going to go down to like seven or eight or something like that. So I'm enjoying the weather while I can. And of course, with the vaccine rollout still going really well, it seems to be fine. And Boris Johnson was clear he doesn't want to change his roadmap timings, does he? Do you think there's anything that might throw things off course? I think there's things that could throw things off course in a negative sense, in a a sense of uh, restrictions being lifted later than is currently planned. I don't think for all the exhortations of the COVID recovery group, it really, really doesn't look like number 10 are going to shift to ease restrictions more quickly, even though a lot of MPs want that. 
so I think the most likely thing is going to be we're sticking to the timetable that was um, unveiled a reasonable number of weeks ago, where everything shifts roughly every four or five weeks. I, I don't really think for now anything is going to change that drastically. They've also got to think, Peter, haven't they, about whether to take more action. So it's 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 COVID variants that are really worrying the government, isn't it? And we, we think they're going to meet sometime this week and perhaps potentially talk about putting some other countries on the red list. That means you have to quarantine in hotels and it means most arrivals are not allowed. Is it plausible to think they could expand that to continental countries close by that are having problems with COVID mutations, do you think? I think it's really hard to tell. One of the kind of interesting long-term shifts of the number 10 view on COVID in much the same way that perhaps in the past they listened too much to lockdown sceptics, now they're not listening really at all, is that for a long, long time, the government view on trying to kind of close off the borders and stop variants or, you know, the virus from getting in was it just couldn't be done. But now they've really, really gone over to the other side of it. There would be a big political fallback if, say, for example, you know, France was put on it just before Easter or before summer or something like that. But again, if there was genuine evidence that a potentially vaccine resistant strain was in those countries and could come into Britain, I think the public would, you know, probably get it. You know, that's a very long way of saying there's a lot of factors they need to weigh up. So I don't think anyone really knows yet. Another tricky decision they've got coming up, they parked a lot of complicated issues when they announced the roadmap, didn't they? Including whether vaccine passports or don't say vaccine passports, in fact, COVID certificates, we have to call them, um, <laughs> would help to reopen sectors of the economy that have been very tricky, including some of those that never got open last summer, nightclubs and and so on. We're going to hear more about that in the, in the next few days, aren't we? Yeah, we are, because Michael Gove is leading this kind of long process to look into it. And we should hear the first response from this kind of working group looking into it, uh, I think on Monday next week, or certainly early next week. And this is an incredibly tricky one for the government. You know, while I've been saying that the Conservative backbenchers who are against lockdown rules are can largely be safely not listened to by number 10. I think vaccine passports might be the one exception to that, because this is the sort of thing which could potentially spark quite a big revolt amongst the kind of civil libertarian Tories. And there's still a reasonable number uh, of them. And there are very, very genuine kind of civil liberties issues to this, not least all the demographic factors, which means that some people are much, much more likely to have been vaccinated than uh, others. I think it could be a big fight. And again, they're going to have to tread really carefully on this one. And the Liberal Democrats are not fans either, are they? They're definitely not fans. And it's going to be a tough one for Labour too. I mean, Labour have, you know, in previous years, been more ID card friendly than maybe some other parties. But basically, whatever you do, you end up annoying a big chunk of people and no one really wants to do that. Let's move on to this controversial report into racism in the UK. It's 264 pages long. It makes 24 recommendations, including doing away with the use of the term BAME. But it finds the UK isn't institutionally racist. Um, Peter, the fuller report will be published after we record this. But um, you saw the briefing the government put out about it on Tuesday. How did it get to that conclusion? Well, it's slightly baffling, really, because, as you say, the report is very, very long. But they gave us literally a of 800 words. And my sense of it is that the eventual report might be a lot more nuanced than the press release that they put out. The the statement is quite a kind of rosy glow of things. It focuses very heavy on uh, heavily on uh, education and points out that a lot of minority ethnic groups, or certainly some, do as well or not better than white kids. And that it says in workplaces that um, disparities in wages are starting to go down, particularly amongst younger people. And it actually basically says that, you know, in these areas, the UK could be a beacon for other similar nations, which has, um, you know, understandably uh, annoyed a lot of the charities and groups which work in this uh, area. 
But on the radio this morning, Tony uh, Sewell, who is the charity leader who was picked to to run this, was giving a slightly more mixed picture. He was kind of saying that he thinks institutional racism perhaps does exist. It's just not as widespread as people think. So I think you almost have two things going on. You have this, you know, long report, which will, to an extent, give the government line. But I think they very, very much handpicked the most perhaps controversial parts of it, almost to try and provoke Labour or someone else into kind of continuing a culture war. It's all very murky. Mm, and so the story is written, or the first version of the story is written before people have actually had the full report to read, which is always always difficult to do. Do you think the, the public will trust this report, Peter? I wonder if the public will even pay a lot of attention to it. This is one of these areas. I mean, I'm not an expert in this whatsoever, but my sense of these kind of reports is that a lot of people will, in this kind of area, be basing things on their own personal uh, experience. So is someone is from a minority ethnic group and they have experience of being discriminated against, that's going to resonate much, much more strongly than whatever a report of experts says, whether or not it's seen as a biased one. And similarly, if you live in a kind of overwhelmingly you know, white rural area or something like that, it just might not mean that much. You know, I'm sure for a lot of people, they will read it and kind of take it very, very seriously. But these kind of things tend to play out over years and decades even. It tends to be a kind of tectonic shift approach. And the government's clearly trying to move along very, very quickly to try and move away from unconscious bias training, institutional racism and things like that. You know, it'll be interesting to see if this report does much. I'm kind of sceptical. Peter, I'm afraid we're going to have to lower the tone slightly. Um, Boris Johnson may almost have been grateful this week for the sunshine and the loosening of the COVID restrictions. It was a bit of a distraction from the, the confirmation at the weekend that he did have an affair with Jennifer Arcuri, the tech entrepreneur, or at least according to an interview that she gave in the in the Sunday papers, while he was mayor of London and accompanied him on official trips. Peter, how many other prime ministers could carry the personal baggage Johnson has brought with him? I think the kind of simple answer to that is probably none I mean, it's it's a complicated picture, um, one of which is just the very, very fact that people having affairs, getting divorced and stuff like that has become much more acceptable and much more normal as the years go on. You know, 50 years ago, it would have been a resignation uh, issue. But a lot of it is also the fact that both in terms of Johnson and in terms of this particular incident, it's already kind of baked into whatever the public consciousness is. The Jennifer Arcuri stuff, I mean, when it came out, even though the number 10 line was that there was no sexual relationship, I don't think anybody believed it. So I'm not quite sure how much that moves the narrative on. But it goes back to the very, very fact we have the first Prime Minister ever where the public genuinely do not know how many children the PM's got. And that's might be fine, it might not. It depends on people's point of views. But that's certainly different to what we've um, had in the past. Mm. And there, there, there is a, a question about sort of financial wrongdoing here, isn't there? I know he, he was cleared by an investigation by the Independent Office for Police Conduct, which found there was no criminal wrong, wrongdoing. But she did seem to have benefited financially in ways other business owners weren't able to, didn't she, during the time she says she was having an affair with him. Yet Downing Street said this week when they were pressed about it, the Prime Minister acts with integrity and is honest. Do you think the public believe that? Do, do they care? Again, I don't think the public necessarily believe that. And this is something which is an incredibly serious thing in one way, that if you do have uh, a prime minister or a mayor, as he was at the time, who's giving kind of financial favours and a sense of preferential treatment to someone he's in a relationship with. That's a corrupt thing. You know, that's obviously not been proved. But if that was the case, it's a very, very serious thing. And as to whether the public care, I mean, the kind of, you know, broad rule of these kind of things is the public never care about these things until they do. And sometimes politicians can get slightly blasé almost and think, well, it's been fine up until this point. 
But, you know, to go back quite a long time in time, you had the MPs uh, expenses, which were going on for a long time. And MPs just assumed, well, you know, no one really cares until suddenly it was a front page of every newspaper. Some MPs were resigning, some were going to prison. So I'm not suggesting this is the case, but I think I think politicians have to be careful about not thinking about things a bit too much because they can suddenly come back and bite them. Mm, and while we're in murky territory, um, this week Labour called for a full investigation, didn't they, into former Prime Minister David Cameron's role in the collapse of the Greensill finance empire. Um, Labour accused Cameron of taking on an advocacy role for Greensill Capital and urging the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, in text messages last year to include the company in the Treasury's COVID rescue schemes. And yesterday a business card emerged, didn't it, that appeared to confirm that Greensill's Australian founder, Lex Greensill, was a senior advisor at Downing Street in, in Cameron's period. Cameron was cleared last week by the watchdog, the Registrar of Consultant Lobbyists, on the grounds that as an employee of the firm, he wasn't really a lobbyist. But Peter, this is adding to a sort of general sense of sleaze, isn't it? And again, this can be quite kind of corrosive for a uh, for a government. Once it gets that kind of sleaze taint, taint, it can be quite difficult to try and like shake it off. And I think for Cameron, this is really quite murky stuff. And I think this story is not going to go away, even though he's obviously trying to do so with the kind of media equivalent of putting his fingers in his ears. He's not returning calls. He's not saying anything. He's not spotted anywhere. And um, that's not something you can do in the uh, in the long term. It's all very, very complicated. You know, I understand it more or less, but not completely, not every twist and turn. So I'm sure a lot of people don't necessarily follow it currently. But, you know, as I was saying, the, the, the big problem is if you get this general impression of sleaze of people with their snaps in the trough, that's a very, very difficult thing. So, again, the government has to be careful. And Labour will no doubt be hoping to capitalise on that, on this on this general sense of, of a government that's, you know, where there are cronies and, and friends and, and people, you know, be- benefiting financially, donors and so on. Um, Keir Starmer's got a fight on his hands, hasn't he? He's got this very tough Hartlepool by-election coming up. There was some pretty grim polling from Redwall seats that came out overnight, suggesting it's, it's going to be quite tough for him to hold that. And this week, there were some reports he might reshuffle his top team, get rid of his shadow chancellor, Annalisa Dodds. But he, he seems to have thrown his weight behind her, doesn't he? Do, do you think he'll reshuffle his top team? I'm going to stick my neck out here with the usual caveat that my political predictions are very often wrong. I think <laughs> Labour will hold Hartlepool reasonably easily. And I think that will take quite a lot of the heat off. If you're kind of anti-Starmer, you can say he's not setting the agenda. Labour aren't really in the news much. They're allowing the Conservatives to dominate. But from a kind of different point of view, you can say that he's playing a long game, that all he has to do with an election, you know, three and a half years away, is to just cement this idea of competence and moderation to a certain extent in the eyes of the uh, of the voters. I mean, in terms of reshuffle, again, with the caveat of my predictions often being wrong, I, I would think it'll happen later, because I think to do it now, particularly when people are saying, oh, this is because he's picked the wrong people, would, would look quite weak. You know, this is going to be a really, really long battle. Absolutely, a mountain to climb, as he often says himself. Uh, never a quiet week in Westminster. Uh, Peter Walker, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. After the break, we look at the state of Scottish politics after a rather nasty couple of years, and we rate the new Downing Street Press briefing room. We'll be right back. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. 
Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Now, last night, the leaders of the five main Scottish parties took part in a televised debate in the run-up to the Holyrood elections in May. The new Scottish Labour leader, Anna Sawa, called for a change in tone in the campaign, from divisive to unifying. His calls come after an intense few weeks as we waited to hear the findings of three separate reports which were commissioned in the aftermath of the Alex Salmond trial last year, where the former First Minister was acquitted by a jury of accusations of sexual harassment of former aides. The Laura Dunlop Review, which was looking into the Scottish Government's current sexual harassment policy, recommended a sweeping overhaul of how it investigates harassment complaints against ministers. Following on from that, last Monday we learned that an independent inquiry into Nicola Sturgeon's impact on the Salmond investigation cleared the First Minister of breaking the ministerial code. Hot on the heels of that finding, a Holyrood committee set up to assess the Scottish Parliament's handling of the complaints process determined that Sturgeon did in fact break the ministerial code, but unknowingly. Millions of pounds in taxpayers' money has been spent in trying to conclude a very nasty period in Scottish politics but there are many questioning who the real winners and losers of the debacle have been. Libby Brooks, The Guardian's Scotland correspondent, has this report. So over the last week, well, a couple of weeks actually, we we have had these three reports coming out, the the culmination of, um, in, in some cases, a full year's investigation into the way that the Scottish government handled sexual harassment complaints made by two civil servants against the former First Minister, Alex Salmond. That was sort of the, the big story of the last few weeks. I'll tell you what, what should have been the big story, I think, was also that last week, for the first time, we heard in full and in detail from those two civil servants who brought the original complaints at the beginning of 2018, whose evidence, you know, it should have been foregrounded from the very beginning the day that it came out it should have been headline news because they were talking about a culture of complicity around Alex Salmon's allegedly inappropriate behaviour during his time as first minister where a blind eye was turned by others in the Scottish government it wasn't headline news though I was confronted with a very difficult situation I readily accept I did so before the parliamentary committee that some people in Uh, being confronted with a similar situation might have made different judgments to the ones that I made. Now, after these reports were published, Nicola Sturgeon said that uh, it was time to move on, concentrate on the election campaign, Um, although she she did say that she accepted many of the criticisms that that had been made of of the failings of, of process. And indeed, um, she apologised to the the two women affected uh, in the Holyrood Chamber on Wednesday of last week. Right, I am very, very conscious of the fact that there is a process uh, to be undergone about rebuilding trust and learning lessons from the mistake that the Scottish Government made. So this, this saga does not end here because also last Wednesday, 
Salmond said that he was threatening legal action against uh, Leslie Evans, Scotland's most senior civil servant, saying that um, he, he felt compelled to take further legal action against her because she was refusing to accept real responsibility for the failings of the internal inquiry into harassment claims against him. Salmond has also called for a police inquiry into the leak of the inquiry findings to the Daily Records. We've yet to hear from Police Scotland whether they will or will not follow up on that. We intend to contribute policy ideas to assist Scotland's economic recovery and to help build an independence platform to face new political realities. And then on Friday, Salmond announced that he is launching a new pro-independence party. Uh, The Alba party will only stand candidates on the regional list. Just to remind you, MSPs are elected to Holyrood either uh, on a first-past-the-post basis at constituency level or from proportionately elected regional lists and Alba is only going to stand candidates on these regional lists. Salmon's argument is that he can create a pro-independence supermajority at Holyrood, which will mean that Boris Johnson finds it impossible to refuse Holyrood the powers to hold a second referendum. And Salmon has been presenting this as a complementary strategy to the SNP, saying that he's expecting the SNP to sweep the constituency votes, but that he can help on on the regional lists. What the electorate makes of this really remains to be seen. We, We do know that Salmon's popularity has been on the wane and that the Scottish list system is very difficult to predict. And it's now for voters to decide who they want to be First Minister after this election. I'll be putting myself forward uh, as the candidate. In terms of the impact that the inquiries have had on support for Nicola Sturgeon particularly, we have seen over the last, I think, six polls around Scottish independence and support for that, evening out to around 50-50 which means that that support for independence has fallen since the start of the year. I think some observers are suggesting that really that's less to do with what's been happening with these inquiries and more to do with the advent of the vaccine, uh, which voters perhaps perceive as evidence of the benefits of remaining within the union. I mean, I think it is also worth pointing out that there has been some polling suggesting that there's generally been a lessening in confidence in the institutions of government. And this has raised much bigger questions about the way that Scotland is is run and and who is running it. And um, I think the problem is that there's you know not going to be much time for reflection on those questions as we now plunge into this election campaign, which I expect to be a sort of fairly vicious one. You know, those those questions are about why it is that the discussion around sexual harassment has become so politicised, why the momentum around Me Too has, seems to have been lost in Scotland, so the blurring of, of government and party sort of with the SNP in power, and also what, what I would characterise as an increasingly abusive and misogynist online environment and let's say sort of most of all especially for those women involved in this case. 
And, and I think it's really worth now going back to that evidence that, that I was saying at the start I felt was the most important story of last week. The evidence from Ms A and Ms B who brought those original complaints and they talked about this culture of complicity within government, about a blind eye being turned. They, they felt that there was a culture at the heart of government where making complaints was simply not the done thing. And what they also talked about, which was um, very hard to read, was just uh, how crushed they felt that their original intention of, of making it easier for people to come forward um, had in fact ended up being detrimental to other women. There is definitely a, a chilling effect from this saga in terms of women coming forward to report sexual harassment now. It's evident not just in, in government and in, in politics, but across the board in Scotland. And that is incredibly depressing. The Guardian Scotland correspondent Libby Brooks there. Now, this week saw the first outing for Downing Street's new press briefing room. If you haven't seen it yet, some of the main takeaways are four big Union Jack flags that flank the main speaker at the podium. The backdrop is a striking royal blue, which some have pointed out leaves the speaker at the mercy of those who can use Photoshop. And for many, the sight of a Henry the Hoover hiding in the corner of some of the early photos was the most exciting part. On Monday evening, Boris Johnson moved his coronavirus press briefing over to the new room in number nine Downing Street. So was it all worth the £2.6 million they spent to build it? And how does that fit into the overall shake-up of the Prime Minister's communication strategy? I needed some insider knowledge on this one. So I spoke to Paul Harrison, the former Downing Street press secretary under Theresa May, and Katie Perrier, former director of communications at 10 Downing Street under May, who also worked on Boris Johnson's 2008 London mayoral campaign. Paul Harrison and Katie Perrier, thanks very much for joining us. Katie, what were your first impressions when you saw the photos of this brand new whizzy Downing Street press briefing room that's cost uh, two and a half million quid? Not at all a leading question there, Heather. Um, uh, so, uh, look, right, it's not cheap, is it? And so I did think to myself, that's a very expensive room. You know, this attracts criticism wherever you go. I remember the time when uh, we were talking about the use of the PM's plane, the Voyager, uh, and talking about how the, some of the seats on it were recycled from Aer Lingus. I mean, people don't like us spending any money on ourselves in terms of the way the British government is represented and when you go around the world and you see what they do we do look like the poor comparisons so I'm not against uh, updating and modernizing I do think it was a lot of money and I'm not sure it was brilliant value for money but I'm not I'm not against actually doing it. Paul what did you make of it? I, it, it Katie's right it makes some sense to do it to make it sort of high tech it has all the broadcast kit and so on which obviously wood panelled rooms in Downing Street you know in number 10 don't tend to have but but what did you make of the look for extremely patriotic? I mean, yeah, it, it was extremely patriotic. I think there's a place for that, to be honest. I mean, the odd flag when you're representing uh, sort of our national life and and being at the heart of it, I don't necessarily think is a bad thing, which is probably an unfashionable view. Uh, but I mean, let's face it, there was no sort of um, interior design innovation. I'm not sure that would have been the right thing either. But uh, yeah, it's sort of it was relatively relatively plain, relatively patriotic and relatively wood-panelled. But someone at number 10 did tell me that part of the reason for that is uh, it's obviously a listed building, so there's only so much tampering you can actually do. Katie, did you watch Boris Johnson's first outing on Monday evening on, on the news stage? Did you, did you think it made a difference? It has a more, I think it has a more presidential feel to it, did you think? 
Yeah, a more professional approach, really. I mean, I have seen, obviously, people on Twitter, the plain blue background makes it very easy for people to impose, you know, um, Armageddon in the background and the fact that, you know, you're on planet Mars or whatever it might be. So <laughs> lots of people on Twitter will have lots of fun with that. There is a limit to what can be done with wood panelling rooms in terms of uh, acoustics, in terms of streaming. Um, and so we do need to modernise. And these buildings, as Paul was right, quite rightly pointed out, are very old and cost a lot of money to to, to maintain and, and get right so often I think that some of the money that's been spent uh, is the money we, we don't see it's all in the wiring and, and in you know doing something brand new that's not been done before the reason for building it is not just for Boris Johnson to give his press conferences is it it's it's so that Allegra Stratton the press secretary can give her televised briefings could, could you imagine her standing there I mean the, the, the model I suppose is is the US but could, is, is that something you could sort of imagine when you saw Boris Johnson up there yesterday? I think so. And other cabinet ministers as well. I mean, you know, I have my doubts about um, televising the press briefings. I don't know whether or not it's for journalists like you, Heather, you'll behave yourself a bit more or whether or not... I always behave myself, uh, Katie. (laughs) Of course, of course. Um, Or whether or not uh, it will be a bit obvious to people at home thinking, well, you know, we're just avoiding the question or whatever it might be. Um, And I also think that people will feel, well, you know what? You know, I want to see my politicians so do I really want to see a spokesperson all the time who I don't really know? Or do I want to see an elected politician? So I think it's worked very, very well for Boris Johnson over the last year to use the opportunity to communicate regularly, directly to people. I'm not sure how well it's going to go down having a spokesperson do that, but I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong. What do you think, Paul? You've obviously done the job behind the scenes of standing there and answering all the, the questions about everything that's going on in government. What do you think it's going to be like when someone has to do that? publicly on camera I mean, <laughs> there were there were lots of days where i was very glad that uh nobody could actually see me sort of awkwardly shuffling backwards and forwards and trying to deflect the questions but uh you know there i think the truth you know as katie says too is that there are advantages and disadvantages to this it gives you significant extra reach if you can actually put allegra on television and you know the, the answers that she gives can be clipped into broadcast packages you know that is a good way for the government to get its message out there undiluted there will obviously be days where answering those questions on camera will be quite challenging because there are sometimes days in government where there aren't really any good answers to the questions that you're getting so because i think transparency you know built on transparency it was probably inevitable that someone was going to do it uh, so in that sense i think there's a you know, you've got to applaud the courage. And Katie, do you think, I mean, you mentioned that maybe the journalists will behave themselves a bit more when the, when the, the cameras are on them. Do you think throwing a bit more light on how political journalists, how lobby journalists work is not a bad idea either? I think so. Um, it's a, you know, it shows that whether or not the, the public think that it's a serious question that could be asked. So some of the most frivolous stuff that gets asked, um, I remember during Theresa May's time, and I'm sure, I don't know whether Paul had to answer some of these, but, you know, what was she wearing and what, where were her, her shoes from? I'm, sh- I'm not sure the public care. And indeed, they will, might find it, the, you know, a little bit of a waste of time for people to be asking those kind of questions. So it might kind of sharpen up some of the questioning that you get um, and also show what's fair and what's not in terms of how many women get the opportunity to ask a question versus how many men, you know, the balance, making sure the balance is right too. Yeah, and it'd be interesting to, to see whether the public's sympathy ends up being with, you know, the, the person having to do the stonewalling, or, you know, do, do, do they start to think after a while, why are these, why are these journalists still banging on about this? It'd be, be, be sort of quite interesting to to see. Yeah, I think that's right. Because I, I think that, you know, the truth is that the public, when they see these things uh, and when they're a bit more of an established feature of, of our lives... Uh, the public will make judgments on both sides, right? So they'll be able to look at Allegra or look at a minister or look at the PM and think, 
are they answering the question? You know, what do I think of them? But they'll also be able to to think, you know, do I think that that's the right question? Is that what I would ask if I had a microphone or if I were on that Zoom call? So as I say, there there are definitely judgments that will be made on both sides. I I think everybody thinks they could ask a better question. Judging by every time I I appear at these things, you always get quite a few little messages afterwards saying, you know, here's here's what I would have asked. But um, (laughs) so I think it's quite a lot of that. On that point, Heather, I think it's a really good point to make that if this setup uh, results in more people being trolled online, whether it's politicians, Allegra herself, or um, journalists for asking questions, that's a really, really bad outcome. It's bad enough as it is now. I really hope it doesn't get worse. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I tend to think it's not about us, really, or it shouldn't be about us, you know, putting on some sort of display or grandstanding. And there's always a bit of a temptation to that for that on on telly, I think. Um, Katie, I think a lot of us assume that the arrival of Allegra Stratton, you know, she's a former journalist herself at ITV and The, and the Guardian, in fact, um, would smooth over relations between the press and the government um, after the departure of Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings, who were quite sort of adversarial. But it seems just as combative as ever, doesn't it? So there was a, a spat last week with the HuffPost journalist, Arj Singh, who'd got hold of a leaked recording of Dominic Raab. And, you know, there were questions about whether he'd he'd produced all of it which you know I think a lot of journalists felt was a slightly unfair attack on him by the government is it, is it actually Boris Johnson who enjoys picking the fights Did, was it were we mistaken to think it was it was the previous sort of comms regime I just think that they've got a kind of a clear thought in their mind and and you know um, strategy about what's important to people and what isn't and sometimes the Westminster, Westminster villagey type stuff in the past has not been important to people and that we've kind of been led down a path whereby uh, you know we, we, st- we suddenly have this kind of creation of a story which is something out of nothing um, and so they, I think they're trying to avoid that and they're trying to be not to be dragged into minor arguments and instead uh, feel that you know we're on this path this is our vision this is our strategy let's just plough on with it so um, I think that's what's what's driving it more rather than than feeling like they want to be distracted. Yeah, there, there clearly are sort of there's there's a strategy at play here in terms of uh, the current number ten's relationship with the press. But I also think that actually that slightly adversarial nature is probably a healthy thing, and I think all governments have it. I think that you know certainly I, I think Katie would say that a little bit about her time in number ten. I would say it about mine because if you're a spokesman or you're you're doing a comms job in central government your job isn't always to give the press what they want that day. You know, if there is a particular story that you're working on or a particular piece of policy that you're gearing up to announce, it's not always in your interest to to give it out, you know, at the time that, that the press wants it. And ultimately, you're, you know, the two the two parties in that fight are doing different jobs. And I, I don't think that's actually a bad thing. I think that sometimes it doesn't always feel comfortable, but but I actually think that that can be a sign of, of both people trying as hard to do the thing that they are actually supposed to be doing. Mm. And Katie, have you noticed a shift in the government's comm strategy at all as, as we've got to the later phases of the crisis? It seems to me that Boris Johnson has maybe been constraining his sort of natural ebullience a little bit. There was an early phase, wasn't there, where he kept saying, you know, perhaps we can beat this thing in 12 weeks and maybe everything would be all right by Christmas, maybe everything will be right in the spring. He seems to have kind of really reined that in in recent weeks and he seems to be very cautious. I don't know how much of it is comms and how much of it is um, a sort of genuine change in his way of thinking. I wonder if um, they've had a conversation internally around 
you know, whilst that was the right thing to do in terms of optimism, keep people thinking that, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel, because what's the Prime Minister meant to do? Stand up and say, it's horrendous, and it's going to be horrendous for months on end, and I've got nothing else to tell you. But I wonder if, from a comms point of view, they've had a conversation internally, which is, you know what, don't give people false hope, because it's not worked out for us in the past, and we keep on having it played back at us and thrown in our faces, even though being optimistic about the future was the right you know, position to take in the past that approach uh, hasn't always uh, paid paid off um, and we can't keep on saying things like it's going to be all right by Christmas it's going to be all right by Easter because those things didn't really materialize they want to to be told more realistically what it could look like rather than false hope I think yeah do you, it, it, and Paul does that feel right because it, it, there's going to be quite an interesting point presumably at some point where we shift from sort of crisis communication i feel like you probably only did crisis communications during your period in downing street but <laughs> where, you, where you shift from crisis communications to to something more like normal life and, and perhaps the tone changes yeah I, I think that probably will happen i think you're right and the curious thing i suppose that that we're going through at the moment is that journalists politicians and all of us are kind of living through one of the biggest stories that we would ever read about so that's not usually the case when you open a newspaper or you know, switch on the bulletins, it kind of the news is slightly remote, we're actually kind of experiencing it, and we're going through it. And I think that, you know, part of the way that the comms has changed, but part of the way that the approach to central government more broadly has changed is because of that lived experience. So I don't actually doubt the sincerity of anyone at the central government of any party sort of in this country really over a long time, because everybody is trying to do the right thing against sometimes quite desperate odds. And you know, that's got to be a good thing. Yeah. And, 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 how do you, you know, Katie? What's what does what's the tone like, or what's the mood like? Do you think when we do revert back to kind of a post-pandemic period, when when as Paul says, people politics isn't impinging on everyone's daily lives, you know, constantly, and and you know, we're we're back to something like normality. We're a way off it, of course, but. I think Boris Johnson has got a real opportunity to have something that most politicians would love halfway through their premiership, um, and most of them don't get, and that's the opportunity to press the reset button. Vaccinations have uh, gone exceedingly well, and people feel that they have faith in his leadership and his gumption to be able to make those decisions, to make a gamble in a way that they may not have felt that other prime ministers would have done so. Um, and so, he, you know, it's, he's balked his way into being able to press the reset button, maybe have a reshuffle, uh, maybe get over some of these big events in the summer, G7, you've got COP26 uh, in November, uh, and move forward with a, this is what I always wanted to do, but I couldn't because COVID got in the way. Um, and that will come in at just, just the right time in order to make some real, you know, changes uh, in order to be able to have a legacy when you go to the next election. So um, much longer, and he would have started to run out of time. But I do think that he has an opportunity now to press the reset button. And somehow Keir Starmer has to try and insert himself into this into this kind of national debate, which won't necessarily be easy. Um, um, Katie Perry and Paul Harrison, thank you so much. Pleasure, thanks. Great, thank you. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Politics Weekly Extra on Friday. The Guardian's Washington Bureau Chief David Smith will be speaking to an advocate for Washington DC's statehood about why those living in the nation's capital still don't have representation in Congress and why Republicans need those residents to stay disenfranchised. Just look for that in the same feed you found us. But for now, I want to thank our guests Peter Walker, Libby Brooks, Katie Perrier and Paul Harrison. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks, as always, for listening.
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.